Welcome back to Pursuing Justice. I'm Harriet Hendel. Our series this month centers around higher education opportunities behind the walls of a prison. We've now met Eliza Cornejo, Executive Director of the Goucher Prison Education Partnership in Maryland, and a former student in that program, Ramika Robinson Peoples, who is finishing her BA on campus at Goucher. And to, uh, last time, those who were tuning in, we met Jody Lewin, who is president of Mount Tamalpais College at San Quentin Prison, and a former student, Tommy Winfrey, who graduated from the Prison University Project at San Quentin back in 2014. Welcome back to both of you. It's good to have you with us. So we were talking to you, Tommy, last time about um, your educational experience, and you were telling us that you graduated from San Diego State with a major in criminal justice. Are you doing anything with that major at the present time? Uh, presently, I'm working for the California Conservation Corps, so I work for the state. Um, I have written policy, uh, and I did that. I went on to grad school um, as an executive fellow at Sacramento State. Um, when I was in that program, I was appointed to the California Conservation Corps uh, through the governor's office in Sacramento State as a fellow, and I worked on policy issues, and I helped them um, shape some of their policy around uh, people that have justice system experience enter into the core, um, which previously they were, they were pretty strict regiments against that. Um, there was a lot of hoops to jump through and a lot of disqualifications. Uh, they since opened up uh, their requirements to uh, allow a lot more people with justice system involvement to enter the core. And I, I was, I helped shape that policy. So I would say, yes, I have used uh, my education and I still continue to use my education at, when I work uh, with these young fellows and help shape the conversation around uh, what someone looks like that has been involved in the justice system uh, and try to break down some of those uh, barriers and stereotypes that exist out there. Now, um, you, you talk about the Conservation Corps. Can you explain um, what exactly that is to people? I'm not that familiar, of course, either. Yeah, the California Conservation Corps is actually the oldest conservation corps in the United States and the largest. Um, it's a state department, and it was started way back in 1976 by Governor Jerry Brown and during his first term, first stint as governor. Uh, we're, we're, uh, we have a pretty crazy motto. It's hard work, low pay, and miserable conditions, and more. <laughs> I like to think of me as the more part that helps facilitate <laughs> the transition from the core into uh, you know, adulthood. It's, it's a program designed to help 18 to 25-year-olds um, in the state of California. It's really dual task. We're dual tasked with the mission of protecting and enhancing California's natural resources, but we're also tasked with developing young adults for the state of California. So that means like through hard work and, you know, discipline, 
teaching them the value of that and helping them succeed in life, uh, look for careers. Uh, I help them with their resumes, job searches, applications, financial advice, uh, like how to uh, open a bank account. Oftentimes our core members come to us, don't even know how to open a bank account. So those are some of the things I help them with. Uh, and the core really like, I know you're based out of uh, Florida, Harriet. And no, our, New Jersey now. Oh, oh, sorry. <laughs> yeah, but I wasn't Hurricane, Hurricane Ian just went through there and we have uh, crews going through there to do a lot of the cleanup work, um, help uh, all over the United States. Now, are these young people who had been in trouble or just um, teens? Right Absolutely now? not. They're They're just... They're, the only requirement to get in our program is you have to be ages 18 to 25. If oh. you're from the military, you can be up to age 29. Uh, it does not uh, require that you've been in trouble before, um, but it used to previously um, disqualify you from being in the court if you had some certain circumstances of justice system involvement. All right, Jody, we'll ask you a few questions. Um, do you ever exchange ideas with other directors of higher education programs, uh, you know, in other uh, prisons in the, in the United States? Yeah, certainly, quite, a, quite often. And, and how is it done, you know, where you meet with people or it's all done, uh, you know, like on Zoom or how does that work? Well, you know, it's interesting. Before COVID, we were doing a combination periodically. We, we did a few face-to-face uh, -face multi-day trainings for mostly new practitioners from around the state. I think the last one we did, which was several years ago now, um, we had, I, I guess, maybe one in 10 of the folks who participated were from another state. But it's gone, it's, you know, gone everywhere from you know, the multi-day face-to-face training to um, hosting visits from other practitioners who'll come and kind of embed themselves with us. You know, they'll come in and visit, sit in on classes, have the opportunity to talk to students and faculty and staff. And then also I've done a fair amount over the, over the years of actually visiting other programs, meeting with the staff there, meeting with um, their faculty or even helping with recruitment and training of faculty um, and, you know, coming inside to visit programs as well, to observe and just to learn. That's great. Why do you think college programs are not part of every prison in the country? I mean, I think for the most part, it's because there is no, you know, constitutional right to access to higher ed, right? And that typically is the standard that guides at least, you know, the theoretical, the things that people at least in theory have access to, even if the quality is not good. Um, but I think it's also that um, there hasn't been a lot of incentive or a lot of invitation to colleges and universities come inside. And I think those who tried for many years, um, you know, that found the prisons just to be sort of impenetrable. You know, they just couldn't get anybody to call them back. But for the most part, the biggest reason has been that there have not been, it's sort of, it's a kind of a combination of there not having been adequate resources and then, you know, just a lack of knowledge and experience and then receptivity on the part of the institution. How, how would you, I mean, it's such an incredible 
um, kind of opportunity. And, and uh, Tommy, you had mentioned to me in our pre-interview call that the experience was life-changing. Those are your words. So given that, um, and I, I know that the men are so, men and women, because uh, Goucher is both, um, that this opportunity is so wonderful. How would you plant a seed um, so that more prisons um, would do something like this? How, how, how would, would you like to see this duplicated across the country? Yeah, I, I could give you my personal narrative, Harriet, or I could give you uh, actually like some data behind decision making. I think, you know, data wise, uh, we have to look at the incarcerated population. Um, these people are returning to neighborhoods uh, and living next door That's to right. you, me, everybody else in this country. There's over 2 million people incarcerated in the United States. Um, out of that 2 million, uh, millions of those, most of those people will return to society. Um, and it's how do you want those individuals uh, returning? Uh, I think Jody has some numbers uh, that where it's been studied before. Recidivism rates are really low um, for her program. And nationwide, recidivism rates are really low for people who achieve higher education. The higher you go up um, from associates to bachelors, uh, to graduate degree, those numbers just drop and drop and drop. Um, people do not return to prison if they get a higher education. That's on the data side. Um, personal side, it was life-changing for me. I can tell you as coming into the justice system at the age of 19, um, had a high school education, but honestly, it was very poor. I graduated from continuation high school. Um, by the time I did get incarcerated, I kind of had to teach myself how to read all over again because mm -hmm. I had not read a book since the fifth grade. Um, so, you know, that's the kind of education I received. And when I got involved in higher education, it really taught me um, a lot about critical thinking skills. My world was very small. Um, it was what I observed in life. Uh, and that was not a lot, but a violent up bringing in violent streets. And so that that was how the world operated in my in my mind. You know, college, higher education really kind of expanded uh, my belief systems and allowed me to take a look at myself and understand like where my life got off track, use those critical thinking skills I learned in uh, English classes or, um, you know, philosophy classes and really sit down and think about my life and think about what my uh, belief system was, my morals, where they came from, and who I was uh, previous to, you know, all these negative traumas that helped happen in my life, and uh, that kind of shaped me, and just understanding. So I think that's really the power of higher education. It's not about uh, that piece of paper at the end of the day. It's really a, a journey of self-discovery. That's why we send young people off to the university to live alone for the first time and, and get this wonderful college experience, right? It's so it helps shape them to make better decisions in their lives uh, moving forward. And it does the same for the incarcerated population. That's great. And Jody, I want your thoughts on the same question I asked Tommy about uh, the impact of, of this and, and why, why we, uh, maybe how and why we, we're not seeing this so much more. 
um, how, how many how many colleges in the nation, or not colleges, prisons, um, do this kind of, of thing, offer this kind of program? You know, I don't know the answer to that. It's a very good question. I know that it is growing, but, um, uh-huh. and for a, a variety of reasons, um, but, you know, in various, and this, it's sort of part of a larger conversation, but in a multiple, in a variety of contexts, there are um, more and more funding sources becoming available. Um, but the, the challenge there is, to me, the question is not how many colleges um, are doing it or how many uh, prisons have, you know, higher ed programs. But I always want to know about the quality of what's going on and, oh, and what's sure. driving them. And, and so what I see is more and more colleges that do have some college, sometimes like Tommy talked about, it's, it's correspondence programming or you know, some sort of distance ed programming. But, but what we're also seeing, I think, is you know, higher education in general is really suffering right now, right? Financially, the field is in a free fall. And so... Um, the last thing on a lot of schools minds is serving more people unless there's a way or doing more i should say unless there's a way to generate revenue through it and so the problem is that i think a lot of schools are approaching the prisons now as a potential source of revenue Hmm. and so you know you're seeing more and more schools you know programs crop up but the understanding is that it's going to you know at least has the promise of generating more revenue for the main campus, right? And so, and the problem is, this is a field which is uh, notoriously free of systems of, you know, accountability or standards for quality. And so, it, it actually, I think, right now today is a pretty precarious um, moment. But and then the other thing you see in the field is that there has, as I think, for a variety of reasons across the country, there's been more and more attention. To, you know, to the criminal justice system, to conditions of, of confinement, of the problem of people returning to prison again and again because they still don't have the resources um, for, you know, to pursue real alternative um, lives, but, you know, or pathways. But what you often see is small independent colleges that will come into the prison and set up a program, but it's very, very small. They have a very competitive admissions process and they're often so, you know, they're, they're excluding the vast majority of people who would be interested. And they also aren't necessarily particularly interested or skilled at helping students bridge that gap from high school or GED to college. And I often feel that helping students uh, get ready to succeed in a rigorous college setting uh, you know, that sort of pre-college bridge is one of the most important things that we do. Yeah, I Once a student that. is academically ready, and, and Tommy sort of alluded to this also, once that student understands what they're capable of, once they have the confidence and the, the sense of self, you know, to ask for help and to, you know, to just um, pursue their dreams, you know, the bulk of the work is over, right? But sort of overcoming the academic, social, psychological for some people, neurological challenges, you know, to being back in the classroom is really the much the much more complex side of it. Anyway, but you know, but then the impact is what I think drives those of us who work in the field because you meet so many people who um, who had no idea how smart and capable they were. Um, and 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 that's the other thing I would stress: it's not that you know, college is about making someone smart. 
It's about creating the conditions and the access to the you know, experiences and resources that will allow that person's intellect to really evolve and grow. But, and like, you know, Tommy was saying, you know, he, he was describing his world as, as having, you know, initially or for a long time been very small, but in a sense, you know, my world, when I started teaching at San Quentin was much smaller than Tommy's, you know what I mean? But <laughs> I had, but well, I mean, I, I didn't know what an associate, uh, associate's degree was. I only knew people who had gotten a bachelor's degree. A hundred percent of the kids in my graduating class went to college, right? When I went to college, my parents paid my fees and tuition and gave me spending money. I mean, you can't, you don't really understand cluelessness until you meet someone like I was, you know, at that, at that stage. <laughs> but no, seriously, but the difference is that the world I had been handed was a much more pro-social and socially and economically viable world, right? And so I wasn't banging my head against the society as a whole, you know, I was, I was, I was set up to thrive much more, you know, and, but, but my point is, I mean, what was so remarkable when I think about getting to know Tommy inside over the years, he was so obviously brilliant and, and scarily funny, like, from <laughs> right. But he didn't think of himself as an intellectual. He didn't think of himself as a writer, but you knew talking to him, if you could get this man to write his thoughts down and to kind of apply his, you know, incredible, you know, powers of observation and, you know, sense of irony and whatever, you know, that he would really be a force to be reckoned with. But I just feel like that's important because I think often we imagine education is, you know, you're sort of coming in and civilizing the barbarians and it's absolutely mm -hmm. not. You're really just creating a climate and a set of, you know, skills and or providing a set of skills and tools um, so that that person can, you know, develop those parts of themselves. Right. I, I think I got to see that in my four years at Greenhaven uh, Prison in New York. Um, I, I could see the, the gifts and talents of these men. And it, it was it was remarkable. And so I, I think that too, you know, changing people's attitude about who is sitting behind those bars and that there are artists that are so talented, writers that are so talented. Um, we, we don't realize those things and, and those are important. Now you mentioned, we were talking about um, colleges um, benefiting from getting involved with the prisons um, in terms of revenue. Um, can you speak to the Pell Grants? Um, does that, do they, you know, have a connection to the college? Yeah. yeah, no, so there's a similar opportunity and challenge there. So in 1994, Congress passed the Violent Crime Control and Law Enforcement Act, which among many other things, barred incarcerated people from receiving Pell Grants. And that was actually the, the sort of apocalypse in the field of higher ed in prison. Um, you know, of the last few decades. It pretty much wiped out all but a handful of programs. And our program was actually started in the wake of that. Um, we actually started right after that happened. And so that, that's why to this day, our volunteer, our instructors are still volunteers. And we're really sort of built with the understanding that students are not going to have access to, to other sources of aid. But the problem with Pell is there's a couple of things. Because it's administered per capita, right? It's, and this is true of most models of financial aid, federal and otherwise, 
the, 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 the school receives funding based on how many students they're enrolling, which creates then an incentive to enroll as many students as possible. Sure. Also doesn't come with any, as I mentioned earlier, um, standards, uh, quality standards or systems for accountability. So there's nothing to stop the school from running a very low quality program and simply raking in as much money as possible. But the other dilemma is that Pell alone is not enough to mm -hmm. do the work well. I see. And so it's an opportunity, but it depends on, frankly, the material resources of the school, of their capacity and willingness to generate other sources of revenue to do the to the, but but also their integrity. Frankly, you know the extent to which they see the incarcerated student as every bit as valuable and worthy as the students on their main campus. But this is also, I think, partly why our becoming independent became so important to us over time as a matter of principle. Because what we wanted to also model and demonstrate is that these students are every bit as worthy. Right. Um, as students in, in any other setting. All right, we have about four minutes left and Jody, I would like it if you would share possibly um, a couple success stories that our listeners might enjoy hearing. And certainly Tommy is one, but I'm sure there are many, many more. I mean, there are, it's interesting, This the concept of the success story is always a little bit um, flummoxing for me. I mean, there are, I define success as the student is thriving. The student is safe and well, um, is, you know, in a, is housing secure, has food and, you know, a meaningful career ideally or is on their way there. Um, but, you know, we have students working in technology, you know, in the tech world in the Bay Area is really is really big. And a lot of people are working there. And what's exciting is not just watching their careers, but watching the impact that they're having on that professional community. Right. Because where our former students are, people's lives and their their minds are changed in terms of how they think about criminal justice, sure. and how they imagine someone who might have a criminal record. But there are students in business working in the business world or starting their own businesses. We have a lot of former students working in the field of reentry. David Cowan, who's a former colleague of ours, founded an organization called Bonafide, which is supporting people um, from the moment of release and actually helping them prepare even before they come home. Um, we have students working in the realm of, um, of homelessness, drug addiction, and you know recovery. Um, there are all sorts of folks doing. I, I know there are other fields that I'm missing, Tommy, but. Um, there's sort of, yeah, I mean, Pat Mins is doing extraordinary work also in, in reentry. Um, yeah, but uh, to me, it's really, it, it's really not so much the model individual as much as just seeing the healthy community. And like when I see people on Facebook, you know, I'm friends with, you know, dozens of former students on Facebook. And when I just see them well, or see them, you know, in, sure. in, you know, with their home or their partner or their child, you know, like just knowing that they're that they're thriving is to me is really the sign of success. I, I would agree. Um, I I wanted just to uh, leave my listeners with a quote I I uh, said last time, but I think it's worth repeating, and it's um, goes like this: It's never too late to become who you might have been, and I like that very, very much. And certainly that fits, you know, what we've been talking about. Um, I want just to say that next time on Pursuing Justice, I've invited Seth Miller, who is the executive director of the Innocence Project of Florida, to be my guest for 
four podcasts. We will talk about, speaking of successes, the successes of the project in 2022. Uh, Innocence Project of Florida underwrites this podcast. And I've known Seth since I began volunteering with them in 2009 and throughout my six-year term on the board of directors. So please tune in. And real quick, Tommy, do you have a, a final message for our listeners? A little... Uh, in the realm of higher education and, and incarceration, I just think that um, people are worthy, no matter where they're at, of higher education. Um, and just look at it like it's an opportunity um, that they may have never ever received um, otherwise. And that goes for, you know, the people who watch the people in prison. A lot of them didn't have those opportunities as well. And they're very deserving and worthy of a higher education. And, you know, the argument that why do they get it when I don't, I mean, there's some validity to that is like, they should have a higher education as well. Um, it shouldn't be just for the privilege. Well, thank you so much, both of you, Jody and Tommy, for spending time with us today and sharing your very different experiences um, with Prison University Project and now Tam, Mount Tam College. And we, we wish you well uh, going forward. Hope things uh, work out for both of you and the school. And I'm, I'm just so glad that we made this happen today. So thank you again. Thank you so much for your wonderful work, Harriet. You're very yeah, welcome. Thank you, Harriet. All right. Take care. And listen, please join us next time on Pursuing Justice for uh, a very interesting set of podcasts. We see you next time on Pursuing Justice. Thanks for listening to my podcast today. You have been listening to Pursuing Justice on Society Bites Radio. I'm your host, Harriet.